Hello and welcome to this, the 52nd and final episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series has been brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Through their bursary system, it has made it possible for this whole second series to happen. So I'm eternally grateful to the Arts Council for their support it really has made all the difference and because of that support each week we have brought you these conversations absolutely free of charge we promise that we won't ever charge for this podcast but as ever we are looking for you to put your money where your mouth is and put your money into Irish theatre the whole ethos behind this podcast is to support promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And as we've told you for the last 52 episodes and the 52 episodes before that, the simplest way for you to go and support Irish theatre is simply to turn up and buy a ticket. It is the simplest, most direct, most effective way. You get a great night out at the theatre and the theatre machine gets to keep on ticking over. It's the simplest, most straightforward way. Make sure you keep on doing it. But of course, if tickets are slightly outside your reach this week or this month, there are ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, even if we are finishing up, whether that's in person, over a pint or over a cup of coffee, just to get the word out. The more you can get the word out about this podcast, the more we can use that platform to get the word out on the great theatre artists that we've been talking to right along the way. You can always share the link as a Facebook post, retweet it on Twitter, put it up on Snapchat or Instagram or any other social media platform that you're using. Do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. I know we're finishing up, but I think it's safe to say when you look back at things like Cobra's Quest and also the two seasons of Rise audio drama that we've put out. This won't be the end of audio content from Rise. We will be putting it out on this channel or if not, we'll at least be letting you know on this channel that that audio is coming. So no harm in going and subscribing there. And of course, as ever, all these 52 episodes and the previous 52 episodes are streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie Do go back and listen to all the other episodes, both in this second series and indeed the 52 from series 1 there's an awful lot of crackers back there with some great names from Irish theatre if you can do please leave us a review over on iTunes or simply click to rate us on their 5 star rating system if you've been promising yourself all along that you'd do it this is episode 52 the last roll of the dice send us out with a bang send us out with a high chart position get on over there and leave a review if you would and as ever you can follow us on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland or you can follow us on Twitter we are at Rise Ireland and it's been another busy week here here at Rise Towers, though mostly with me back in freelance actor mode, it has to be said. I was in the Abbey for a new play development workshop on something they're workshopping in there at the moment, which was lovely to get back in the door of the Abbey. is always a happy time, working with some really great actors and directors and uh, and this writer as well. It was fantastic. And also just flat out on voiceovers at the moment, which again is no, no bad thing at all. I guess now that we're past the Halloween period, we are into the magic of Christmas and all the attendant voiceovers and advertising and everything that goes with that. So nice to be busy 
it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. But I have to say, it has been a week of ups and downs at Rise Towers because we received word this week that we were unsuccessful in our latest application for Arts Council funding for our show coming up next year, which obviously is a disappointment. But I had put in place an insurance policy a couple of months ago with additional venues that I would just be able to do what I always do with Rise, which is just make sure the show goes on anyway. So regardless of funding or not, we're going to make it happen on a commercial basis. We are going to still tour the country. We're going to bring it to all four corners of Ireland, bring it to somewhere near you. We're still going to make a brand new world premiere of exciting new Irish writing because that's what we do at Rise. We put the head down and we keep it going. And as my granddad always said, a consistently high standard of work over a long period of time cannot go unnoticed. And so what we do is we keep plugging away. We keep making the work, keep bringing to the audiences that want it throughout the island of Ireland and trust that it's going to keep finding that audience, which thankfully it has done for the last seven or eight years. So heads are up. We're ready to go and do it. I'm really looking forward to it. We've got some very interesting times ahead next year. So look, that brings us to our guest this week. And in a very fitting case for the final episode, it is none other than the brilliant Selena Cartmel, someone who I've had the pleasure of working with before and someone who I admire greatly, such an incredible artist. And from being such an important director here in Ireland for so long to now being at the helm of one of our most iconic theatres in the Gate Theatre here in Dublin, it's such an exciting time to have someone with her passion, with her talent, with her skill, with her vision and with her ambition at the helm of the Gate is such an exciting time, I think, for all of us and anyone who's seen what she's done in the relatively short period of time that she's been there in terms of the programming of the work that's gone on I think we're all very very excited with how it's gone so far and how it may go in the future so look let's get straight to it here it is the brilliant Selena Cartmel the wonderful Selena Cartmel joining me on the podcast I'm delighted to have you here for the big finale this is a this feels like a special one so I'm delighted to have you um it's great to be here take me back to the very beginning what were the first impulses for you that drew you towards the idea of a career in theatre? I think from a very early age, uh, I remember a panto. Right. Christmas panto I went to, and I must have been seven or eight years old. And in terms of being bitten by the bug, I remember going up on stage very young and thinking, this feels like a safe space or this is my reflections from, this, <laughs> from a much older <laughs> girl now. Um, and I remember really clearly going to the bathroom afterwards and this woman came up to me and said, oh, you looked really comfortable on that stage. Wow. And I just remember thinking, at the time, how unusual, what an unusual thing to say. Yeah, it's a really specific yeah. sentence. And then now I sort of think, well, maybe that, that, that safety, that, that confidence of being on a space like that, it was a panto, it was um, Mother Goose. <laughs> so it wasn't high art form, but I, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved panto. And I think that was really the first time I, I realized this, this was something interesting yeah. at a young age. And in terms of then starting to the early steps of pursuing it as a career, mm-hmm. or even just as a field of study. Mm-hmm. At what point did you go, well, maybe this might be how I choose to pay the bills? Um, well, starting it sort of seriously thinking about, is this something I'm very passionate about? Would it have been about 15 or 16 when I had my GCSEs? Yeah. Then I studied it at A-level. Um, and then around A-level time, I was thinking, well, could this be something I'd want to pursue? What would I do at university? Mm-hmm. Went to university, studied history of art and theatre, and then sort of, wondering if I should, from my experience working on shows um, at university as an actor, 
got terribly, terrible stage fright. Really? And of course, you blame it on the director. And I, thought, <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe I could do the other thing and maybe understand a little bit more about what that role is. I always felt I had ideas to share. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that was the point where I thought, this is something I could possibly do. And then I went on to train at Central School of Speech and Drama as a director. That's really intriguing to me. Do you, when you think back about those times as a performer, mm. do you like? Is there rose-tinted glasses, or does it fill you with dread? Or? It fills me with dread. It fills me with dread, and I think that's why I have such respect for actors. Is right. because getting on stage and doing that every night mm. in a rehearsal room, where it's you know in an environment where you know huge emotions and being able to express yourself in the ways that actors can, you do look and you just go, oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. But I knew I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I was toying with the idea at one point of going to drama school to, to train as an actor, and then I just thought, no, this just, just isn't, this yeah. isn't for me. Um, so then the impulse to direct, the, and how did you find the training then? Did it, did it kind of the ideas that you had had in your head of oh maybe I might have to try this out? Did you find very quickly that, that you were ticking those boxes? Well, yeah, this is this feels like a better fit, or was it more of a longer discovery on it? Well, when I was training at Central which is an amazing course. It was an MA in advanced theatre practice, is the official title. And you're put in little companies. Okay. So in fact, even though you're, you're, being, you know, you're training, you're actually working in mini companies within your year. Okay. And then that would include a director, a dramaturg, five actors, a playwright. So you were devising and creating work at that level, yeah. which was obviously a little training level. And I think that gave me a real sort of insight into company, how to work, how to work within a company, how to lead a company, how to collaborate, which was a huge learning curve. <laughs> um, and I think it really gave me the sort of the bedrock for me now of looking back, thinking if I hadn't have done that, I don't think I, I maybe would have been, in terms of the depth of interrogating what collaboration is yeah. and how to create new work as well as we did a lot of classics, taking classics apart and putting them back together again and what that means for, for today as well, yeah. for artists today. That's fa it's a fascinating model and I think it, kind of looking at the Lear now, the mm. way they have designers and tech staff and directors and writers all in-house with the actors as well, it feels like that kind of more holistic approach mm -hmm. to training feels like a really beneficial way to do it. I think so, I totally agree. And I think what it does, it sets everyone up. Just everyone understands what everyone else does rather than someone going into a rehearsal room and saying, okay, this is what we're gonna do. Mm. And there's a really interesting balance around that. Is part of that then simply removing the mystique that you go, oh, that's what a director does if you're an actor, or oh, that's how a writer arrives at, you know, a, a draft that's ready for performance. Is part of it just as simple as that, maybe? I think, that, I think it is as simple as that, but also I remember my teacher at Central said to me once, you know, in order to become a director, you have to call yourself one. And, <laughs> yes. And in many ways, that was a real learning curve because I would never have called myself a director. Right at the time because I didn't really know or understand what it was until I had this training and she says from now onwards you you know you really need to call yourself that and for probably a year after I left Central I still didn't quite understand what that meant mm -hmm. and only in hindsight now do you realize she had clearly a really informative um, you know really informed me yeah do, do you know 
how you thought of yourself at the time then, if you weren't fully confident to refer to yourself as director, do you know what you thought you were at that stage? Someone playing around with the idea of being a director okay. um, <laughs> and, and knowing, and I saw a lot of work at that time in London and that yeah. really had impact on, on I, I remember very clearly seeing um, Complicité Street of Crocodiles and they were, they had worked at Central's Mentors mm -hmm. and I remember going to see the show in the West End and I just was, I remember the silence at the end of that production. The curtain had come down and it was 15 seconds of silence before anyone put their hands together to break the magic. Yeah. And I just thought this is a transformative experience. And I think it was that show at that time made me feel this is possible. Mm. This sort of transformative um, experience between artists on, on stage and audience together, they can create something that is really special. And I think that was that visceral feel of what that could, what theatre could be. Yeah. So that was a really informative time. It's, we talked to Neil Murray about this as well, talking about his time in London, and just having access to that much world-class work on your doorstep. How significant is it? I mean, London is one of the major centres of world theatre. There's no mm. way around it. How significant or beneficial was it to be there at the time and have access to all that work? I think it's, it was huge. For me, it was hugely important because I, I sort of, a massive appetite and I remember just seeing I mean from a young age going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival seeing like 15 like packing in from like 8am in the morning yeah. until like midnight as many shows as I possibly could see yeah um, so I remember really needing that 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 um, sort of nourishment mm. of seeing as many companies from around the world with as many stories and I think travel and seeing work all over is really, really key, I think, as you're starting to form your own ideas. Yeah, well, how important is being exposed to as wide a range of work as possible at an early stage in kind of in formulating your taste, your aesthetic, maybe? Is that is that a key thing for it directors is. particularly, maybe? Well, f for me it was. Obviously, yeah. I can only speak from my own, my own experience, but I went to, I mean, Indonesia, I went to Bali to study Balinese dance okay. when I was, and then to Egypt to study belly dancing. So there was a part of my life at one point where I actually wanted to just this is my this was my dream at the time to go around the world learning all these different dance forms from okay. different countries so I took a year out and I went to Bali um, from Hong Kong to Bali and uh, and I and I was there and I lived with a, a Balinese family learning Balinese dance and Topang which is the mask dance wow. working with a gamelan so I think all those all those experiences you have in your life really do you know, if that's through dance or choreography or music or lighting or, or, or working with, with, with writers, they do all join up at some mm. point and you start seeing dots, you know, you start piecing together your own little jigsaw puzzle of yeah. what has... So I think travel was a big, big part of that, if it was London or if it was New York or... Is there something in, in the way that if you, if you go to learn other languages mm -hmm. that eventually you start to notice the patterns in that the construct of language can be very similar across, you know, broad geographical spreads or cultural spreads. Is there a thing that there is a common theatrical language, even if it's in Balinese masked mm -hmm. dance or big West End hits? Like, do you f start to find common threads through them? Yes. So let's just take the Street of Crocodiles and the Balinese. So for that example, for that, for me, there was a sort of a spiritual, um, a spiritual uh, connection that in both those pieces of work I felt somehow transformed yeah. through the experience, through the live act of, 
witnessing um, that sort of theatrical alchemy. Mm. So I suppose those are the, the journeys I, those adventures of seeing that work for me really felt a key part for me to understand what it could be, what theatre, what live art, what this live performance um, could be. And I, I, yeah, it really, it really made me, it was more than just putting on a play mm-hmm. at the time. That's, uh, that's interesting that, that, that it's not just we put on a show for people to come and see and walk away from it, that there's something more to it, that it's a more fundamental experience for the audience. That, or even that that's the aspiration. Whether you get it's there the aspiration. Or not. I mean, of course, <laughs> the aspiration is that. Um, yeah. And very rarely does anyone achieve it. But I think there is, I think whenever you commit to creating whatever the work is, if it's here at the gate or if it's um, as a freelancer or you have your own company, I think, for me, um, you're talking potentially a two-year slot or a year and a half or, you know, minimum sort of a year of... And if you want to spend that kind of time on something and you really want to really get under the skin of it and understand what this piece could be, you want to make sure that that is the story you want to tell. Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. Um, so that became... So I, I've, I've always I've felt been driven by that mm. as sort of the key for me to unlock why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. In the way that when an actor finishes a training school, they can kind of get out, get an agent and mm. wait for the phone to ring. How, for you in the early days, how do you break out into the world and say, I'm here, I'm ready to direct, let's get this show on the road? So after Central, I was assisting directors. I assisted Stephen Burkhoff um, and a host of other brilliant talents. Um, and I think you learn more maybe from what they're doing wrong rather than what they're doing right. right. Okay. So, so, so I think that was a really good training. And then, so there was a sort of a year of assisting and then I came back to Dublin because I was at Trinity here, which was also a really informative, it was my first piece I ever really directed was Alice in Wonderland at Players. Right. That got, um, I call it transferred to the Samuel Beckett Theatre. <laughs> at the time it was the biggest deal in the world yeah. because you think, how can, how can a student, um, you know, players' piece that mm. you've... Uh, so, so I just thought that was amazing. And I still do feel like it's one of my highlights of, um, of my career. Um, so, yeah, so I, so, I, so I came back to Dublin to... So after my year of assisting, I came back and I was shadowing at the Abbey, um, yes, as you know. Yes, indeed, in the early days on Plough. The early yes. days. And then something happened where I sort of got into a group of actors and started to think maybe, and a group of collaborators who are still um, some of my long-term collaborators, and I started to feel this is maybe where I want to create work. So I kind of stuck around, and I created Siren Productions, yes. which the first piece ever was Fando and Liss by with Fernando Arabel with Tig Murphy. And so, so that was the first piece, Fando and Liss, for, which I'd done under Siren, and I had no producer. Um, I pretty much directed it and produced it, not that we had any budget, yeah. so everyone was doing this as a sort of, you know, a shared part of doing it. And Willie White, who was running Project at the time, gave, was hugely supportive. Um, so that was my first piece. And I remember Alma Ferreira coming down to that. And she, she was in touch and she said, you know, I thought it was really, she really got something from that. And then from there, that was my first um, sort of connection with my long-term yeah. uh, sort of director, actor, collaborative, collaborative relationship with Alwyn. 
And then, then she was in La Musica, which was the Fringe Festival. And then from that, Titus was the next one. So, and that's where I started to get funding from the Arts Council. Now, Titus is one of the massive ones in my memory because my recollection of this, and I'm 95% sure this is true, apart from the fact that the show was as good as it was, my recollection is that there were ticket touts outside the project <laughs> selling scalp tickets for like 75 quid for that right. show. Which is, you know, entirely unheard mm. of in Irish theatre. How do you, in the name of Jesus, do you make a smash hit out of a Shakespeare? Well, I didn't <laughs> quite think work. it was going to be a smash hit at the time. Through a lot, yeah, well, I mean, I was supported by the Arts Council pre a year before I got the grant to actually produce it, um, to do research and development mm -hmm. about it. So it was a year building. I had aspirations at the time to take over the Ivy Markets and do a mini coliseum in the middle of Dublin. And I was talking to Jean-Guy Lacat at the time about coming over um, to transform very Peter Brook-esque yeah. the Ivy Markets into a million. And so I, that was the bigger picture plan and obviously that didn't happen. We brought it into project and we turned it into Traverse Space mm -hmm. and it was my first Shakespeare. I think looking back I probably think now in hindsight that the rookie I think naivety is a great thing okay. because I, I think at the time I'd never done anything of that scale, never watched a Shakespeare, it's a group of 18 actors. Can we talk about some of that cast for a second? Of course. <laughs> Aidan Turner, mm -hmm. Ruth Negger, Owen Rowe, Aidan Kelly, Alvin uh, Ferrari. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, come on. No, I was very, very lucky. I was extraordinarily lucky and looking back you think, goodness, how, how did that kind of happen? Yeah. And somehow it did yeah. and somehow we managed, and Maura O'Keefe was producing the work at the time. I'd, I'd asked Maura to come on board, so I had... It felt a lot more um, sort of structured, mm. even though it, was, uh, it, it wasn't at all in many ways as well. And I, I couldn't quite believe we'd actually pulled it off, and I still can't, right. looking back, how we managed to make that work. Um, and what an extraordinary company of actors. I mean, you just you know, pinch yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was, um, I, you don't go into a rehearsal, you, you never start a rehearsal process off thinking, oh, this is... This one's in the bag. Because <laughs> even with all the ingredients, even all the magic ingredients on the page, until you actually get it into the rehearsal in front of an audience, yeah. do you know what what you have? Well, I mean, I, the thing I always say, if if there was a magical formula, every show would be Riverdance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and as you say, even with um, every single element, you know, you can have the best writer in the world, the best mm -hmm. producer, best director, best mm -hmm. company of actors, and it just sometimes... It doesn't gel, but this—it seems like that was one of those magic ones where it was right. Now, that was a show that opened up a very particular opportunity for you. Am I right? It did. Yes. Uh, talk to me about what happened off the back of Titus. So there was—I don't know how many weeks after. I mean, it could have been months, but I get an email um, from Rolex s saying you've been nominated for the Rolex Mentor and Prodigy Arts Initiative, and. The mentor this year is Julie Taymor, and would you be interested in um, submitting your work to be considered by an international panel? Who you know, and of course, I thought it was a hoax, as you would <laughs> of all the of all the people in all the world. Julie Taymor, I was a big, big fan of um, hers for a few years at university, reading, playing with fire. She trained in Bali, Balinese dance, okay. massive, infor you know, informed her work, and I just, I just didn't respond. Because I thought, well, this is this is this is not true. This is the Nigerian prince wiring six completely, million. Completely, completely, completely. And so, you, and then I get a call, a phone call, 
from Geneva saying, <laughs> did you get our email? And I, um, yes, yes, I did. And I just didn't respond because I didn't think it was. And then, you know, they were laughing and said, yes, well, it is true. And do you want to submit your work? And so, of course, I did. And um, then the international panel met and they select um, a shortlist. And then that shortlist of artists from around the world um, meet in terms of theatre that year was Judy Taymor. In film, um, the year after me was Martin Scorsese. So wow. these extraordinary artists. Yeah. And then and then the mentor picks the protégé from that short. And, yeah. and, I've, and I went, went to Judy's apartment in New York with, never met her before, um, completely fangirled out. And with my flowers as like a first date, I remember <laughs> that really clearly being really nervous. Because yeah. what do you say to someone who has had you know, really inspired you um, and, you know, crossing so many disciplines, mm. opera, dance, theatre, music, like she's, she, you know, film, she, she, she does it all. So, and I remember <laughs> just being very, very nervous and, and we got on and, wow. and she became my mentor. What do you, or did you know at the time what you were looking for from that mentorship process? Or is that something that kind of reveals itself as you go? Well, I think one of the things I was really interested in was opera. Because okay. I'd never, I never, I mean, it's the same thing with calling myself a theatre director. I mean, for me, being a, doing any opera, I felt um, I could read music. However, I had no idea what that, that meant mm. in terms of how would you transition from theatre to opera. And she was directing an opera at the time. So I was really, and also editing film. And so I was really keen on... Um, and what, the, the film at the time was Titus, am I right? No, no, it wasn't Titus. It, and that's another connection with Julie, yeah. which was strange. Um, it, it, was, it was a different one. Um, and so I was sitting with her in the editing, editing suite, see, watching her edit a film, and then suddenly I thought, I'd love to, love to make a film. And yeah. so from that experience, what she gave me was to say, you know, you don't have to be pigeonholed. You can, don't have to be boxed into just yeah. doing theatre. You can, um, you know, go work with other disciplines. You don't. So that's that's the confidence that she gave me that it is possible. Yeah. And seeing it firsthand on the scale of what she was making made me feel it is possible. And in terms of contact hours, I mean, was it over a long period of time? Did you get to hang out with her much over that period? Or was it kind Very of much, yes. sporadic checking in? So she came over, it was a year. Yeah. And I'm going over in, to New York in a few weeks and hopefully I'll see her when, um, when I'm over there. So we're still in contact. Right. And we meet up whenever she's in London or Dublin. And, um, and it was over a year and I watched her which is a very unusual thing for another director to sit with another director in a rehearsal room. Yeah. Great insights there, because we never do. We never have, we, we're always in our little bubble world, creating our work with a company in collaboration. Yeah. And then the, the chance and the opportunity to sit in on someone else's. And she said to me, she was really nervous. And then she came over to see my work over at, at I was directing Festin at the time at the right. gate. And so it's a really interesting way of, sort of parachuting into someone else's process. And then she did the same over here. Just So it was a year of between LA, New York, and Dublin, where we spent most of our time. Wow. That, I mean, that is, for me, the interesting thing with directors, because as actors, we're in a different rehearsal room all the time. You see this person and their style, this person and that approach. But when you're a director, you only ever are in the room with you as director, really. Yeah. So in terms of the opportunity to be in a room with Julie like mm. that, or indeed the early days of assisting, how useful were those experiences for you in terms of shaping your own experience? Is it as much about, like, as you said, just kind of find the things that they're doing wrong and, and make sure you never do those? Yes, well, I think there's an ele as elements. I think, I think the, the most constructive and sort of assisting 
I wasn't really assisting Julie, so that was kind of a, it was sort of interesting because she always said, you know, I'm not really looking for a protege. I'm really looking for someone who can, um, you know, sort of challenge and chat about in-depth things about the world as much as about the art that's being made. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, assistants can go from making cups of coffee and tea to <laughs> to actually you know, looking after a show in terms of associate directing yeah. and so they so they vary so much, but each rehearsal room that I've been privileged in many in many ways to sit in on, it's always interesting for me to see how the how the energy and the environment is being created. Right. That for me is what I, I learned the most from rather than and also the relationship between actor and director and how that can I think it makes you a lot more aware of the dynamics and also spotting potential problems where you could see potential problems happening mm -hmm. in advance of them actually happening. Yeah. So because you're an observer rather than actually being in the middle of it, yes. it, it you are observing in a way that allows you to stand back. Mm -hmm. It's a great relief for not being in, in the middle of it. So you've got actually no responsibility. Yeah but you've got the time to watch on. And there is that thing where you are in the middle of it that you don't get to see the woods for the trees because you're so invested in your stake and everyone's in the best possible sense fighting yeah. their own corner. Yeah. But that you say from the outside, because that little bit distance for perspective to see it in a different light. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the art history element mm -hmm. of your training because I think most people would feel that there is a, a trademark visual style to the work that you would make. Do you tie those two things together? Do you feel that it comes from that or is that just an, an interest in design uh, that you have anyway? I think I've always been interested in obviously art history. It's interesting now looking back, I can't really see a painting without hearing my art history teacher saying, you've got to stick your nose into the paint and really understand it. And, so now art, see, watch, seeing art, in terms of hanging painting art, um, always makes me feel I can't actually stand back and just enjoy it. Right. There has to be some sort of, sort of critical, and maybe it goes back to my you know, university days of being told you've got to see that with a critical eye. But I've, I've always felt that if it's film or, or art, um, how much that has, you know, as references to start building up ideas for projects, art and music are usually the two starting points to start creating sort of visual storyboards and books. And, and I think once you start um, unlocking, that leads you down a different path, which leads you down another path. And then you, then you start feeling that the influences of many different types of creativity can inform what you're doing, which I think is really, for me, um, really helps me get deeper into what I'm trying to do. Do you find then that a collaboration with a designer like that can be like opening up a window in a dark room and it casts a new light on on the on the play mm. that their perspective kind of opens up new opportunities within it maybe? Absolutely. And I think designers come in with a completely different skill set, which is, you know, what normally would happen in an early part of the process for me would be I would put together some research materials the designer would put together research materials, would come together to share those materials and see what sparks mm. each other off. So you can't really work in isolation at mm. all. It's almost like, what, what, why do you want to get up every morning and tell that story really is my starting point, yeah. which is what drives this 
this feeling or this emotion or this urgency to tell this story now rather than in 10 years time or 10 years before. And in terms of drawing those threads together, elements of say sound design or lighting or costume or set, how, with you as director at, kind of at, at the centre of it all, how do you weave all those threads together? What's, or what's the approach to best doing that? If that's not an impossible question I to think answer. it's an impossible question to ask because <laughs> each, each project is so very, very different. Mm. So working with um, a dancer is obviously a very different set of parameters and, and, and you know, because I, you know, I love movement, mm -hmm. but I'm not a dancer. Um, it's a very different thing to working with a new play where the playwright's in the room, mm -hmm. which is a very different thing to working on a musical or an opera. And so I think each of them comes with its own set of, um, set of codes right. in a way that for me it's about like a detective sort of unlocking what is the best way to make that particular story sing in that particular form. Yeah, I like it. Um, and in terms of you in the room, in the rehearsal room day to day as you're, as you're then building that show, what, what do you look for in an actor? What do you get excited about in a rehearsal room? I love working with actors who bring lots to the table. Mm -hmm. I always say a twinkle in the eye doesn't go, you know, really helps too. I think there's, I love mischievousness. Right. Um, and obviously coupled with great skill and gift and all of those things that it's so, it's so subjective mm -hmm. what people's views are of one person's idea of, of brilliance mm. um, to the other. But I, I think really good company members really helps set the, um, set the atmosphere and energy of a room as well. And collaborators, I think collaboration and is a huge, huge part of that. And I think the more you do it, the more you direct or the more you create, um, the more you realise how important that is. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing to talk about bringing stuff to the table. I remember when Ian Toner was still in drama school being brought in to direct a small piece with him and like that he just every day was more ideas and really stepping up and embracing the challenge and uh, from my perspective to have someone just bringing that much to the table all the time. Mm. You go, well, now we're firing on all cylinders, mm. but now we can cherry pick the best bits here and there and, and bring it together. And the really great breakthroughs for me is when when no one has ownership of ideas, like somehow like something extraordinary seems to be happening. No one knows how it started. There's no ownership. It yeah. just sort of feels everyone has invested and created this together. I want to talk briefly, uh, not briefly at all actually, I want to talk all day about punk rock at the Lyric, um, which I have said numerous times is just my favourite piece of theatre I've ever seen. Um, I'd love to talk about the experience of it. It felt like a couple of things with it. It felt like as Jimmy's opening salvo in the lyric, saying, look, things ain't going to be the way they may have been mm. before. I thought it was perfectly pitched. But the striking thing about it for me was it genuinely felt the purest, um, the purest expression of all of the elements coming together in one harmonious unit. Like it really felt that design and performance and the text and sound design, all the elements really came together. I went, well, that's, that's a sign of incredible directing then, to have been able to tie all those threads together. How was the process for you? And as you look back on it, what stands out as, as memories from it? 
Well, it was my first time working at the Lyric, and Jimmy had asked me, and it was a real honour to be asked to direct. And we'd spoken about a few titles at the time, and um, and I remember saying to Jimmy, you know, punk rock, Simon Stevens, young, youthful energy, breaking boundaries and saying how it, saying it how it is, um, felt really fresh. And um, and I remember thinking we could cast this with with really young dynamic actors from drama schools, mm. um, particularly the Leah at the time. So, and I knew and I had been watching, um, you know, and following the Leah, just as how it was developing. Yeah. Um, and I think they're doing an amazing job of, of, of training extraordinary actors that are coming and stage managers and everyone who they're training there. Um, and and so we started the casting process and great Monica Frawley came in on as the designer and the late great Shaheen mm. who passed away um, last month and I just and Isabel who did the who did the sound and I just remember thinking this is this is a really extraordinary team of it seemed special mm. it was my first time working at the lyrics the combination of all those things with a great text mm. and with a great company of, of, of these extraordinary talents. The energy from that cast mm. was quite remarkable. Um, I, like it just, it felt, it, it felt like being part of something special being in that audience. Like it, it, it felt like you felt that, uh, it's, it's very hard to describe it, but that there was a real, uh, an energy and a fresh, and that thing of your first time with the lyric, Jimmy's opening salvo, and almost kind of two fingers to the establishment of, hello, this is punk rock, let's get ready for it. Um, and as you said, this kind of new, young, fresh, hungry actors, um, and I, exceptionally talented actors Yes, too. and I think my highlight, you asked me my highlight, I think it was re recording, um, videoing the trailer. Right. Which, because <laughs> it was, we did it in the in the studio space and we, it was full of chalk and there's a black, it's black and white, it's a beautiful piece, I was really proud of it when it, and it was them chucking chalk, like school chalk from blackboards, all over everything and themselves and it was just it was just a real sort of celebration of that kind of energy yeah it was just spectacular i absolutely adored it um i want to talk a bit then about the move to the gate mm -hmm. and what kind of how that alters the approach to some extent because having worked freelance for as long as you did to step into a big institution like this it must be a huge shift Yes, yes, no, it is, and they don't give you a CEO director handbook before you before you come in, and I think that's you know I think there's something about the training of you know going from a freelance career and having their own company to running a, a building and an institution like the Gate. I mean, I'd, I'd worked at the Gate before, so I knew the space. Yeah, um, I directed three shows: Fest and Sweetheart and Catastrophe. Um, and so I knew, obviously, I, I, knew a, I knew the space, I knew what it, what it represented in terms of its position in the community, mm -hmm. but also in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and its extraordinary 90-year legacy was, was, I mean, it was sort of terrifying at the yeah. thought and the prospect of it. But at the same time, I felt there was a lot of things around it in terms of an organisation that I felt very in tune with mm -hmm. and felt... Um, maybe I could offer something different. Mm -hmm. So those were the real sort of reasons why I was 
maybe I needed to think all the ideas I had about you know, the, the, the kind of work that organisations or building-based theatres should be creating. Um, I talked a lot about that and obviously working as a freelancer and having my own company and going into different in organisations, the RSC or in New York or at the Abbey or here, you do understand how challenging it is mm. and at the same time the opportunities are, are fantastic as well. For you then, you know, we've talked a bit about what gets you excited about a particular production or, you know, and, and as you say, you have to live with it for a year or two to, before you get it to in front of an audience. How do you bring that same approach to programming and curating a season and how you want those plays to speak to each other, how you want it to, you know, hold on to an existing audience and bring in a new audience? I mean, is that, is juggling those balls or keeping those plates spinning particularly challenging? Yes, it is. <laughs> I think you'd probably, anyone you'd ask who runs a building-based <laughs> theatre would say the same thing. I think it's a constant juggling act. Mm. And I think it, and I think those ideas of how you programme can come from so many different sources. It can come from meeting artists, seeing artists work both here and elsewhere. It can come from a meeting or a conversation with someone who mentions a play, have you read this, you should mm. read this. It could be picking up a newspaper one morning and seeing an idea that you feel that could maybe we could commission someone to explore yeah. that. The most interesting part of it for me is when I'm in a room with um, artists who are talking about ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's probably 15% of the job. <laughs> but that is the place where obviously I feel more comfortable yeah. because that's sort of the world that I come from um, and it's the most inspiring part yeah. is when you start those conversations off or you're looking for new projects and new ideas and obviously one of the big differences is running a, a building based theatre an organisation versus a freelancer is that you also have a team of, of, of staff and a building to run yeah. lights on <laughs> toilets blocked yeah. Bar, so, you know, all of that. Photocopier toner and all that. So there's so many, but and there's so many great people at the gate who 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 make all that happen as well. So it's it's, but I think fundamentally it's about how you can balance opening up for me anyway at the moment, opening up the gate to new audiences and creating um, the highest possible standard. Mm and also giving a really eclectic mix of work for those audiences and artists. Well, I mean, I heard a stat recently that it, maybe north of 70% of people coming to see The Snapper were first time bookers 74%. So which is ludicrously brilliant. It is the holy grail and it is extraordinary. And I'm, I'm really proud of that, that The Snapper ran for 14 weeks and 74% of our audiences had never been into the gate before. And I feel, you know, that for me is, it says so much about where the gate can go yeah. on its journey and to keep those audiences yeah. and at the same time making sure that the loyal gate supporters, and there are so many, mm. keep coming back and keep yeah. supporting this great theatre. What for you does being here at the gate open up for you that maybe wouldn't have been possible just as you as freelancer or you with Siren? Is it is it the capacity to go, well, we can go and commission someone to do this or, uh, you know, bring in an Oscar nominee like Ruth Negga to play those parts? Is, and, uh, what, what, what has it opened up for you? I think in terms of internationally, 
I think it allows you, which obviously, and it's different because as a director, it's it's really if you're a freelancer or if you're running your own company, it's really it's only your work that you you know and you do, because that's the funding that that we had at the time. And as for Siren, so we could only do one show a year, maximum on project funding, and so that all be just became the work that I did. So the big difference for me is being able to empower other artists to work on that stage, and I think that's the most satisfying. Right. part of it is actually you and what's a real revelation for me is that I probably get as much creative nourishment from doing that as I do my own work right. and sometimes even so much so that I think <laughs> maybe that you know that becomes maybe what this role is mm. which is to try and create opportunities for if it's playwrights or actors or who, whoever to work on a stage like The Gate mm. and to create their best possible work and to dream. Does that come from people offering you supports and platforms as you came along, for example, the Julie Taymor thing? Or is it as much about having new, young, exciting voices come in invigorates the building and the company for everybody, including yourself? Yeah, I think both. I, yeah. I, I think, I think you know, we have a new um, as artists in residence at the moment, and I think just having them upstairs, I just love hearing, I mean, <laughs> upstairs above this office, um, I just love hearing that energy. And if I had, you know, if, if I had the, the means and ways, I would fill this entire building with, with creativity in every nook and, nook and cranny, because I, you know, there's some great spaces here. Um, so I think it's a bit of both. I think it's it's to it's to allow the energy of artists to fill the spaces, and at the same time, obviously there was always that balance between risk and um, sort of what you think could be more guaranteed shows yeah. to bring in um, audiences. Yeah, um, is the gate particularly well suited in terms of its profile for? you know, being one of the very biggest places on the island for making work, but also that it always had that international eye as well, both in taking the work out of Ireland and bringing in artists from abroad as well. Is that something that sits well in terms of you and your ambitions? I think that's really important. And I think as, um, you know, as an international theatre, which I kind of feel the gate mm -hmm. is, and it's how it was established back in 1928 by McLemore and Edwards, which interestingly, they took their cue from the Gate Theatre in London, right. which is an international house as well, in terms of what they were taking, you know, bringing playwrights in for the first time to, international playwrights mm. in, and also touring to Egypt and to <laughs> Denmark and to, you know, all over with their, with their productions, which is extraordinary when you look back at the archive. Anyway, don't get me started on them, because I think they're just, they really, they really offered something really unique. Um, but I do think there is a melting pot of and the gate i believe can become that where international artists come in and and irish artists and they mix and they create really really interesting in, interesting work so it becomes a home for international artists and it also becomes a home for irish artists mm. and they both feed off and collaborate together and create work that maybe couldn't be created anywhere else yeah you're still very early uh, in your run here Further down the line, when you move on to somewhere else and you look back, what will success look like for you? Or what will you be able to point to and go, well, I'm, I'm proud of that. What, what would you most like to have achieved? 
There's a number of things. I think philosophically, I would love there for artists and audiences and the staff here at the gate to have an emotional investment, to feel there is an emotional investment in the gate. Yeah. And for a long time, beyond my time here as well, for it to become more accessible, mm -hmm. um, a space where, where people feel anything can happen, and a building that, that is as much a civic space as it is an art space. Okay. Um, and I think that goes back to having an emotional investment in, some, in terms of the relationship, the way that people um, view what theatre is and live performances over the next few years. It's the gate centenary in 2028. So I would love to feel that there was um, a journey there for people to, for artists and audiences, and for our stakeholders to feel that, that this journey, although 90 years, is 90 years young rather than yeah. 90 years old. Fantastic. Well, I'm so delighted and privileged to have had you on for the last episode. Uh, as you know, I'm a massive fan. Um, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you. Thanks. So there you have it, the great Selena Cartmel. I'm so happy that I was able to get her on the series at all, particularly to get her for this big finale episode. Selena, I have to say, is one of the main reasons this whole thing came back for a second season to begin with. There were a couple of people out there who I didn't get around to first time around who I really felt I wanted to include in this project. Selena was one of those names at the very, very top of the list. So I'm so delighted that we managed to get her on the podcast and I think it's an appropriate way to close out this second series. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings on around the country. At the Abbey, they have Double Cross and also Asking For It coming up soon. At the Gate Theatre, it's Gatsby coming back with Rise Productions regular Rachel O'Byrne, Kate Gilmore and a whole host of others there. At the Gaiety Theatre, John B. Keane's The Matchmaker, directed by Michael Scott, is coming up soon. And at the Board Gosh Energy Theatre, it's Shrek the Musical, followed by The Band. At Theatre Upstairs, they have Cassowary coming up soon from Kevin C. Olihan. At the New Theatre, it's Extremities, followed by We Can't Have Monkeys in the House. At Smock Alley, at the moment they have a huge amount of literary events going on featuring names like the great Liz Nugent so check out the website there at Smock Alley for all those events at the Pavilion Theatre they have Swan Lake from the great Michael Keegan Dolan at Driacht in Blanche it's Holy Mary on the north side at the Viking in Clontarf Brothers of the Brush is running there at the moment and at the Dolman it's and thank you at Bewley's, Bewley's Cafe Theatre it's your last couple of chances to catch Ringer by Stuart Roach and that'll be followed in there by Hero at the Project Arts Centre in Temple Bar it's Recovery and The Bystander and at Galway's Town Hall Theatre they have Frank Pig Says Hello and then Soldier Still at the Lime Tree in Limerick they have Tan and up north at the Lyric in Belfast they have Dear Arabella so look this is it we're done I have achieved what we set out to do I thought I had at the end of the first season but I had always left that window open the great logic I always used was the Ricky Gervais model of you do the series of the office and then you're allowed to come back for the Christmas special and I always viewed this second series as my Christmas special as I said there was a few people who I didn't get around to first time around who I really wanted to cover and I felt I needed a second series to go and do that now for those people who I really felt I hadn't got and wanted to either I got them and they're in this second series or I asked and they didn't want to do it and so either way I've now done what I wanted to do with it and I do stand over the fact that it is 
this incredible archive, the most comprehensive archive of Irish theatrical voices ever assembled. And yes, we are on the syllabus at Yale and at various drama schools around the country and around the world. And that feels incredible. And it's nice that it will be there to be a snapshot of a year in the life of Irish theatre and a time capsule for us all to go and look back on. And I was wondering how I would close out this second series and, you know, big speeches and whatever else. So I went back and listened to episode 52 from season one. And I realised that how I signed off there was entirely appropriate. And it is simply to say thank you. To say thank you to all of you who listened either every week or selectively when it was someone who you knew or were interested in or were excited about. To everyone who helped spread the word and told mates about it, posted about it online, helped share the word of what we were trying to do here. And of course, most importantly, to all the guests who gave so generously of their time and of their spirit and without whom, literally, this would not have existed. So I just want to say thank you to Kate Gilmore, to Ian Lloyd Anderson, to Stephen Jones, Claire Monnelly, Steve Murray, Jen Coppinger, Leon Bell, Lachlan Deegan, Rachel O'Byrne, Jonathan White, Marion O'Dwyer, Emer Murphy, Dr. Tanya Dean, Jane Daly and Siobhan Burke, Connor Hanratty, Kate Ferris, Nick Dunning, Jedda Debris and Finbar Doyle, Michael Scott, Patrick Lonergan, Ian Toner, Claire Dunn, Laura Honan, Lisa Lamb, Kieran Bagnall, Jim Culleton, Dan Monaghan and Marie Ruan, Louise Kiley, Gemma Reeves, Alwyn Fuere, Julie Kelleher, Gus McDonough, Michael Sheehan, Christian O'Reilly, Katrina Ennis, Ruth McGowan, Annabel Cummin, Des Cave, Katrina McLaughlin, Dennis Conway, Lawrence Kindlin, Karen Ardiff, Liz Fitzgibbon, Fanula Gigax, Matt Smith, Thomas Kane Byrne, Tom Lane, Colt Cabana, Ronan Phelan, Gary Hines, Neil Murray, and Selena Cartmel. Thank you so much for making this series what it was and for giving me one hell of a year. And so look, that is us. That is episode 52 and this series and this podcast in the books. We will, of course, not be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you in the theatre.